Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen, he doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. God Whispers, world famous God Whispers, episode 331. Can you believe that, Bill? <laughs> 331. And you are? Oh, I'm Craig D'Onofrio. There you go. I'm Bill Swirla. We yeah. still haven't gotten that back yet. we got to figure out how that works. But we are. Yeah. We're back. We were back. We, we, did, we did 330. This is 331. Very excited about this. But before we we really begin i think we need to dedicate this episode in memory of yes in memory of our executive producer rufus d'onofrio rufus 2006 to 2018 a great uh, nobody nobody gave the crotch snout quite like rufus Mm -hmm. you know you come you come through the door and boom right to the crotch you know, Paula and I were talking yesterday because he just died like four days ago now. God, but uh, God we were talking yesterday about. Soul. <laughs> so she she asked me, "What is your favorite remembrance of Rufus?" And I gotta say, there were two dogs at the dog park that were humping, and Rufus jumped right on the back. The party was nice, the party was bumping. And everybody having a ball. In the corner, you feral beast. <laughs> so, uh, that was yeah, Rufus. anyway, uh, shameless. He was utterly shameless, and I loved him for it. Of course, he's a dog, so he acted like well, a dog. Well, he'd do that to your leg, too. Yeah. You know? Well, no. He, he wasn't much of a leg guy. And he didn't like gardeners. Of, of certain <laughs> ethnicities, I don't know if well, it's the okay mailman to say especially. That. The mailman uh, hated the we, mailman. Yeah, we had to get a mailbox outside because he kept shredding the mail that would come through the slot in the door. Let's and, let's and, try uh, to say this delicately, yeah. but Rufus in another life could have worked for INS, ICE. Did <laughs> <laughs> you ever see? You know, in your other podcast, maybe you'll have to watch Casino. Casino. Joe Pesci is in it. Oh, okay. Right. And uh, so, so the the character of Joe Joe Pesci, you know, he's this little guy, but he has no problem going after the six foot five, two hundred eighty five pound guy and just just <laughs> knocking him, you know, grabbing a baseball bat and just clubbing him to death. <laughs> that was Rufus. So I, I think you know, in a previous life, Rufus was kind of that Joe Pesci kind of guy. Well, he did. He would, uh, yeah, and, and he had that build too. He was kind of kind of built like Danny DeVito. You know, he sort of yeah. he just walked around, yeah. big shoulders, just big, but not big. He wasn't that big a dog. But but well, he, if he, you he, mess with Paula, though, he'd take you down, man. He'd carry himself he, like a big dog. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a pit bull that got loose, and Rufus took him out. 
Oh, that's right. He did. He he yeah. took out a pit bull. There was blood, and then we we examined Rufus carefully. He wasn't bloody at all. He's just wagging his he, tail like, "Hey, he that was bloodied fun. Let's a do pit it again. bull." Yeah, yeah. But I, he was a he was a friendly dog. He was a good social dog. Oh, yeah. he, he took after he, he his owner. People. Great party yeah. dog. I I mean I I know I've I've seen Rufus work the party. Yeah, you know, uh, ladies, he, man, he wouldn't snuggle. He wouldn't snuggle with us a whole lot on the sofa or anything like that. But if you were a visitor, yeah, he'd jump up on the so- on the sofa and be like, "I'm not going to let you leave until you love me." Absolutely, ladies, that, that ladies, man at the party, thing. ladies, you know, man, definitely. You yes. threw one of those luau things that you like to throw, and there's Rufus right there. He's working the ladies. Yeah, yeah, working working the crowd. You know, uh, Steve Mo's wife Emmy would. Uh, he he, pretty much owned her, so <laughs> she she'd come in the door and he'd do the run up to you and roll over in oh, front of you and and give you the uh, scratch my belly look and that and, was it. And being and being a, a, a short hair, uh, pretty much the the whole glory is there on display. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. At, at least Absolutely. him and his neutered glory, but the, you know, that's, that's <clears throat> yeah. yeah. But he, you know, I'm like, you know, you know, I, that I tend toward cats, but I don't dislike dogs. I don't dislike dogs the way dog people dislike cats. I, 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 I admire a good dog, and Rufus was one of the Hall of Fame dogs in my life. I, I, I really, I really did uh, actually like. I liked the animal. He was, he was, he was a good dog. Now you did a, you know, did, didn't you do I, like I, a I, genetic I, analysis on him? <laughs> We did. I think that it was just full of it. It it, it didn't come up hardly he anything. Hundred percent you know, canine. He, pretty much. Oh, yeah, good. he's okay. mostly dog. No, that's good. Uh, there was a little bit of wombat in there. So, I think. Some I'm not kind sure. of evolutionary quirk. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it was interesting because he's clearly corgi in his build and his ears and everything, and yet the analysis comes back with shepherding breed, just generic. It's like, well, that's. That's not really helpful. You know what the problem with that is? They they don't have enough data. I guess because it's a statistical thing. That's how I've I've looked at that with with the human version, like twenty three and me. And mm-hmm. in the major categories, they're pretty good, but in the minor minor categories, the error goes way up because the database isn't large enough yet to really be accurate. So the more people that participate, the better that whole data pool becomes well according to the ancestry.com one that i did they had it on sale for christmas a year or two ago so i did it and uh, apparently i'm six percent jewish so i am six <laughs> percent offended by the lcms at any given time <laughs> i assume that means ethnically not religiously unless yeah, it doesn't matter is there a gene for that you know i think so wow if there is then maybe calvin was right after all <laughs> <laughs> so anyway we, we we're, we're going to dedicate episode 331 to rufus Oh yeah. Adieu, adieu. Parting is such sweet sorrow. Oh, now I'm tearing up. Yeah, yeah. But he's, he's, he's got his golden fleece tail. I was about with to baby say Jesus that. in his golden fleece diapers. Lu- I never realized how much Luther loved dogs, and uh, he loved his dog, and and uh, you know it's one of those Luther quotes that you can make of it what you will. But but I think it's perfectly consistent with a new creation that I expect to see a new Rufus. I expect to be greeted in the resurrection with a with a good sort of you know snout to the crotch kind of. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Nothing says welcome to heaven like it's not in the crotch. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> so, hey, are you going to get another dog, or is, that, is there a grieving in, period? In time, in time. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, we, we don't want to just jump into it real fast. Mm, yeah. Some people do, some people don't. You know, we, we say that in two weeks we may have a new dog, or it may be a year. Who knows? Well, as, as we cat people like to say, you don't look for the cat. The cat finds you. And yeah. so, so, you know, you're going to be walking along one day, and there's going to be some sort of some half-breed thing forbidden in the book of Leviticus that's just going to spark your interest, and there you go. You're, you know, another dog. Right. I believe in not naming your dog right away also, because they, they kind of need to tell you what their name is. Right. They, no, they reveal themselves yeah. to you. In now, the, Rufus came pre-named because he was a rescue, but, you know. <laughs> in the meantime, uh, how's, uh, how's the tiki business? Well, oh. uh, the floor is about 98% done. I've just got to trim out one edge Sweet. a little bit more. What are you laying, what are you laying there? Uh, it's the, uh, vinyl planking, uh, fake wood floor. That's good stuff. We put that in our church, in our sanctuary. It's not the interlocking, like, uh... It's glued down? Are you gluing down? It's peel and stick. Oh, okay. We had, we had a kind of a mastic, uh, I mean, you know, pros did it, but... Yeah, this isn't the, uh, the, the, uh, like, Pergo or anything like that. No, no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's it's bulletproof. It and, is, and uh, you know, so if the basement floods or something, who you're, cares? You're gold. Yeah, and I've that's got a good an extra I- box. So if one peels up, big deal. That's a good idea in a basement because, yeah. um, you know, the slab always wicks moisture anyway. Now you can you seal. Is, is it sealed or are you are you working on top of another floor? What are you doing? No, the the floor was painted down there. Oh, so okay. I guess yeah, probably, probably sealed. sealed. Yeah. 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 And then just slap it down, and uh, you know, really, it looks just like hardwood. And the only people that are going to discover that it's not are either people that listen to this show, or the people who get drunk and fall down. Why does it get down on all fours? When you're on the floor, then you might say, "Hey, this isn't real wood, is it?" The first time I encountered that stuff was it was in the grocery store in in the produce aisle. And it looked like distressed barn wood, reclaimed barn wood, you know, that kind of gray yeah. look. Yeah. And, and I'm looking down, I said, they had just re- refurbished our local supermarket. And, and I'm down on all fours, you know, next to the grapefruit. And, uh-huh. and I'm, I'm, I'm checking it out, and I go, this isn't wood. And, but standing up to the eye totally fooled me. And, and it looks great. And now, what, 10, 12 years later, still looking good. And nothing yeah. gets abused like a grocery store in the produce aisle. But that stuff wears really well. So this afternoon, I, uh, I put up the movie screen. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a motorized, uh, it's 90 inches wide. Wow. It's motorized. Wow. And uh, it's a brand that got really high reviews on Amazon, but there's one review that just keeps coming back over and over again, more and more people, is that the casing is really flimsy, and so everyone who gets one, it has a dented casing. Oh, is yours dented? Yeah, yeah. Oh. came with a dent. So, uh, but uh, <laughs> Consider it a feature. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's so cheap. I think it was like 75 bucks. It was ridiculous. And it's motor. I got a remote control that, you know, the thing goes up and down. It's, Awesome. That's so, cool. So, it's, but that's a projection screen. Yeah. And, yeah. and what do you then project onto such about? What do you use to project? Well, I, I you remember when I was a missionary guy, I had a video projector. And oh. So, 
I'm either going to mount it on the ceiling or just put it on the coffee table. I, I got to mount. I like but the ceiling mount. Yeah, it's just going to take a lot more work to uh, mount it on the <laughs> there ceiling. There you go. <laughs> instead of just throwing it on the coffee table. Ah, ceiling mount. Because, look, tiki bar, projector well, the, on coffee table. The ceiling is Tell isn't me real what could high. go wrong. You know, the, yeah, I know. I was thinking about that, too. But the ceiling is only, it's less than eight feet. Mm. And uh, so basically what I've decided is wherever the projector ends up going because you've got to kind of move it back and forth, you know, until you get it to fill the screen just right. You got to put like a sofa right underneath it. Otherwise, anyone who's over six foot will be banging their head on the projector. And that's, <laughs> well, yeah, that, that is a problem. That's not an option. It's like so. a chandelier, you know, you just yeah. put it right to the forehead. Yeah. But I think I think the the ceiling mount is, is classier. Maybe you could do a drop down so it kind of like goes back up into the ceiling when you're not using it. Uh, yeah, I looked into those. Like those, are, those run like they start at like 500 bucks and go up from there. That, that's not unreasonable. So... Uh, so you, you've got projection, you've got flooring the bar that's kind of got the... Yeah, yeah, the I've, got like, uh, I've got like, I've got, I was at the uh, the Restore, are you familiar with that? Habitat for the human- for Humanity, Restore? No, I'm not. Oh, you should check it out. They're, mm. they're all over the place. Um, you, building supplies and all sorts of stuff. Also furniture and, and uh, carpeting, all that kind of stuff. A lot of it's just leftovers from building projects and people bring it, roofing material, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, uh, they had a kind of like a chopping block cabinet that was uh, probably about two and a half by four feet or something like that. Uh-huh. And I picked it up for 20 bucks. And so I'm refinishing the top of that. Because uh, there's a little stain and stuff, so I'm sanding it out, and I'm going to reseal it and all that. I've got videos on how to do that. I didn't know you were so handy. I'm learning. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of my bar back, and then on each side I have these Palapa Hut bookshelves to put all my tiki <laughs> mugs on and stuff and LED lighting. And then we've got a little bar that goes in the front that's a human off mid-century modern kind of cool, kitschy little bar that we had in St. That's, Louis. That's your so. vibe, kind of half shabby yeah. chic and half mid-century mod. So now the big question is, how do we get rid of the pool table? Because oh, wait, I can't wait. figure Heresy. out how they what got it down What are you talking about there? there? Uh, there's just no room. It, it takes oh. up, it's nine feet long. There's it takes a lot up too of, much room. There's a collective groaning in GW Nation just hearing that sentence. Yeah, I'm a little worried that I'm going to have to get a chainsaw or something to get it out of there. Because they, you know, I, I saw don't know how to get it up the stairs. He, the turn for the stairs is just tight. Here's the deal. Okay, yeah. here's the deal. I saw this on HGTV the other night. My wife, my wife watches it. I just kind of, I'm, I'm in the room. It's always great background. They assemble them. Those are assembled in place. Right. And so you have to disassemble them in place. A good pool table has a slate. It's got a No, sl- this this does not have slate. Oh, this is I've been moving pool. it around. Oh, yeah. okay, it's not. Oh, the one I saw, it had a slate. They 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 it came in these pieces and they assembled it in the game room. And then they covered it right there. So they stretched the uh, the felt covering, whatever the kind of covering yeah. was. They they stretched that over the the slate base right there. But this was this was assembled in place. Yeah, I grew up with a slate pool table, and that thing had to weigh at least five hundred pounds. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's I mean, all assembled and everything. It was it was. So massive. you're not talking that. You're just talking just some big clunky pool table. 
Yeah, I mean, it works. It's it's actually kind of fun and stuff, but I stink at pool for one. And, and it does take two, up a lot of room. It's taken up too much valuable tiki room. Tiki room. <laughs> well, if anybody knows how to throw a tiki party, it is you. Uh, yes. And that includes the smoked pork, always delicious. The and, Kahlua pork, yes. And the blue Hawaiian or some other concoction, which oh, I normally see. wouldn't drink, but, you know, you have to you have to go whole hog. When you go now tiki, I've, don't go halfway. I've stepped up my game so much. I, I've got about 250 drinks in my tiki repertoire now. It's <laughs> ridiculous. If I have the ingredients... I can do amazing things. So now you are in Cleveland, and I'm yes, still sir. schlepping around in Southern California in suburban Los Angeles. Yeah, your taco place is closing. I am grieving. Teddy's Tacos oh. is being squeezed out by Chipotle, no less. Oh, no. Yep. No, no. Chipotle brooks no competition. They want to poison their customers entirely on their own. They will not have anybody else do it. And so, uh, yeah, they're they're taking over a pizza hut, and on the same property, <sighs> controlled by the same landlord, is my 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 taco stand, Teddy's. Well, how long has that Teddy's been there? Uh, well, it's this isn't the first incarnation of that. They've had it for, you know, I mean, I'm thinking maybe five years. The the brother sister act that runs it, Mama, who who cooks there, they've only had it for a handful of years. The the brother sister act were were mortgage bankers. They still are. I think they're still in the business, but they they were thinking about getting out of that, and they got into tacos. But they took over that taco stand from another owner. But they, they took it to levels the other owner just never did. I don't think it even was a pure taco stand that when they took it over. But um, that's their, speaking of, uh, you know, we, before the show, we were talking about Italian grandmothers. This is a Mexican grandmother, and boy, can she cook. Oh, so man. I don't know. Yeah, I'm really bummed about that. We go there every Saturday, Teddy's Tacos. They got written up by Steve Lopez in the L.A. Times. Not so, enough to keep them going. Well, no, it's not a problem of business. They do are, turnaway business. It's a problem yeah, are they, of are they lease. Going to, it's are lease. they going to move? Well, they're looking, but you know, it's hard to find a place. They're a very that's a very small place, and they take nothing out of it. It's 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 a it's a total loss. So any any place they have to go, they're going to have to refurbish a kitchen, and the whole <sighs> thing. There's a lot of front capital to starting up a restaurant unless you can yeah. move into something that's ready to go. So they're looking, but they haven't found anything yet. And let's face it, I mean that location was just just absolutely great parking lot of a Mexican grocer. Uh, it was it was just vintage. I just love that place. Still open. They're still doing business, so we're still going. Oh, man, it's happening everywhere. You know, uh, uh, Don the Beachcomber down in Huntington Beach. They lost their lease. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I, I saw, last time I was there was with you and uh, and Steve Mo and those guys. Yeah, uh, birthday but, party. And that place is that place is iconic, or was yeah. iconic. Yeah. Well, they're looking for a new location. They're gonna hopefully reboot so i'm so. hoping if we swing through cleveland that uh the four of us can do a michael simon's restaurant yes. crawl that would be <laughs> we're just gonna gonna go nuts i'm not a real tiki fan but i am a huge michael simon's fan so that and uh i think ruleman is isn't 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 what's the name uh, michael ruleman i think yeah he's a, he's a cleveland resident too. yeah yeah that guy, he's he's just all giggly and fun. Oh, he's he's awesome. You know, he's a really good food writer, and he really understands food from the kitchen side. Yeah, he's Thomas Keller's writer. I mean, he wrote Thomas Keller. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, wow. But uh, how's the congregation in Cleveland? Fantastic. Good. These these people have not learned what a fraud I am yet, 
and uh, oh, a few more yeah. episodes of this show, and they'll be oh yeah, they'll be they'll yeah be right there. Yeah, I'll be looking for a new call shortly. That'll be. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I think it's time to get down to business here. You yes. Want, you want to go to the mailbag? Let's go to the mailbag. All right, let's go. The God Whispers Mailbag, brought to you by tiki bars and restaurants that are closing near you soon. Bill? All right. The mailbag's actually kind of busting full these days, but we had one letter that looked kind of interesting that basically asks, and we're kind of like redacting our letters these days to protect the innocent and the guilty and uh, basically keep this dog in our pen. Uh, But here's the question to the manly doctors of divinity. What has been the long-term effect, if any, of the Seminex controversy in the Missouri Synod uh, today? What year did you graduate seminary? What year did I graduate the seminary? Good question. Uh, That would have been... Um, 19, well, I graduated class 1990. 90. I was ordained, placed and ordained in 1992. Okay, so you graduated, though, with your MDiv, um, what, 16 years after the event? Yeah, Subinex, for those who aren't uh, uh, up on on kind of uh, mid-later 20th century LCMS lore, uh, Seminex refers to seminary in exile and the walkout of the Concordia Seminary St. Louis faculty in 1974 over a variety of doctrinal and political issues. And uh, these uh, issues became intractable, intracti- intractable, intractable, that's the word I'm looking for, irreconcilable and otherwise polarizing, uh, much the way things are, everything's polarized today. <laughs> and so the, the, the faculty led by the president, John Tejan, uh, essentially set up a, a shadow seminary at Eden Seminary in St. Louis, and they call themselves Seminex or Seminary in Exile. And so it was a, it was a walkout of a substantial number of uh, the St. Louis faculty, and so the synod had to reconstruct a faculty rather quickly. They brought in many of our teachers, actually, uh, mm-hmm. You and I, Craig, uh, that we yep. had in the 80s uh, were part of that reconstruction faculty. Some very good people. They guys like Norman Nagel came from Valpo and uh, Dr. Horace Hummel and those guys. They, they had to fill in where um, these positions were vacated and had to keep uh, keep on going. And so, um, but that happened in 1974. Uh, that was the year I graduated high school. So in terms of my history, I vaguely remember the controversies. And in a nutshell, it had to do with the use of historical critical method and other literary critical methods and, and their application to the Bible and whether that was a valid thing to do or not, uh, be, or did it compromise the Bible as God's word by treating it as ordinary literature. That's kind of a, that's a simplistic rendering of it. But there, there were lots of denials, lots of controversies, lots of things going on. When I was at seminary, you know, I was there just a few years after you, uh, 93 to 98. And even then, it was still kind of, you could tell it was kind of raw with some of these guys. Oh, yeah. And and it was almost like, oh, we don't talk about that. You know, I, I, honestly, I didn't learn hardly anything about it at, at seminary. Outside of seminary, I did. But well, I was talking to somebody uh, 
kind of higher up in the synod at one of the meetings that I went to, and and he, and he said that in as part of the so-called Koinonia project in in the synod, they kind of were asking the question. A, do you know anything about Seminex and the controversy? And B, how does it affect you? Which is similar to the question posed to us here. And what they discovered was that there was a real divide in the Synod. And it wasn't over whether you were supportive or against. It was whether you knew anything about it or not. <laughs> right. And so there's a rising younger generation who knows not of Seminex. And really, it's, it's a distant past. 1974 is a long ways gone. And so there, there are people who were born way after that and who have not heard it or heard of it. And if they do study it, may have a different viewpoint because things always look differently when you're not in the middle of the battle. It's like the Civil War. You know, can you even write an objective history of the Civil War even today? Is that possible, especially in the South? <laughs> I'm not well, sure. Yeah, and that's that's a big point right there is we all know that in history, the victor gets to write the history. That's and, kind and of axiomatic. So, I mean, uh, losers tend to disappear. Right. And, and so what you end up with is a revisionist history that yeah, is mostly accurate, I suppose. I, I, what I found interesting as I started learning more about it is that a lot of these guys that walked out, walked out mainly because they just loved their professors who were great guys and they thought that they were being treated shamefully. And far be it from conservative Lutherans to ever treat anyone shamefully. But, well, uh, well, I personally know, I, I, uh, I have good friends who were members of the senior class of that year. And can you imagine having gone through the entire system, even from prep school. So you've been trained by the Missouri Synod, and you've, you've had this string of teachers, and you're, you're now in your, your final year of seminary, and this thing blows up. So you have all this investment in your education, yeah. and, and you've had pretty much of a continuum of education. It wasn't like all of a sudden things went radical. Now, yeah, there were a few people who were a little bit on the fringe and radical, but but can you imagine getting to your senior year and basically saying, uh, you know, all these guys are wrong and they're they're, they're all out? Yeah, everything the, you've learned here is garbage. I mean, you Good know, luck. I'm having just an existential crisis at this point, so... I, <laughs> I, you know, unless you're in the middle of it, you have no idea what kind of what, what that even remotely feels like. And and so, uh, yeah, when you have a, a thing like that, well, what it ended up happening was there were a number of congregations who left. They formed uh, the the what was the, the we have the e, we have the ELCA. They they were the uh, oh gosh, I forgot now, but the A A E L C, the American Evangelical Lutheran Church, A E L C, yeah. Um, and they were part of a, a group of congregations that were loyal and supportive, and so they left. Um, not sure how many, about 200 maybe, I'm guessing. Don't hold me to that number. I, I've lost track of my acronyms a long time ago. And those guys, the ALC, were, they were the catalyst to bring the LCA and the ALC together to form what is today the ELCA. So they were, they were a, a small group of, of pastors and, and congregations and, and professors and theologians, but they were, they were instrumental in catalyzing the merger of two larger Lutherans into a very large Lutheran church body, which was the ELCA. So that's kind of, you know, that's one of the lasting effects of that. Um, we lost some interesting thinkers along the way, guys like Martin Marty, 
True. Um, Richard John Newhouse, a uh, few others. Uh, there's probably many more. I'm just speaking off the top of my head, so I, and I haven't researched, I haven't refreshed my memory in this research for a long time. But the question today is today. What 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 effect does it have today? And I I don't I don't know about you, but but I would say that the the lasting effect is we probably have a deeper suspicion of uh, Lutherans outside of our circle today as a result. We tend to be, I Mm. think, a little bit more closed in. Uh, One of the blames was that all these professors had gone off to Germany, to Europe, to, you know, all these universities, and they learned liberal theology, and then they came back, and it polluted our water. And so we tend—you notice that a lot of our PhDs tend to be in-house today. Mm. And so we're doing a lot of training of our own. Not a good idea. Yeah, I, I don't think. that's that's a problem also because you get academic inbreeding. Well, you get the echo chamber effect where right. you're no longer testing your ideas against or in in the company of people who don't agree with you. And uh, you know, I, I've I, I'm long beyond the you know going for the PhD thing. But if I did, I would go someplace that probably wasn't even Lutheran. Just to just to, to put it to the test, to be involved in a bigger conversation. Right. Because otherwise it's just confirming what you already know. We are probably uh, I would say we're probably clo- cozier with evangelicals and to a certain degree with fundamentalists as a result of that, because our way of reading the Bible uh, tends to be closer to the evangelical fundamentalist way of reading the Bible, uh, albeit with a Christocentric and sacramental accent. But uh, we defend inerrancy. We go to the mat for inerrancy. And as a result, I think we're kind of suspicious around any scholarship of anything that, that touches the Bible. Well, and that's a big thing that Seminex was kind of billed as the the battle for the Bible. Yeah, that's. I mean, that was the popular battlefront. It, you gotta you gotta realize this is a layer cake. There's politics. There's ego. There's personalities. There's family history. All of this is feeding into this. But the the way it was popularized and put to the 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 rank and file was that the, the Bible was at stake. They're taking away your Bible. And uh, the threat was historical criticism, which reduced the Bible to uh, just basically a collection of uh, traditions and legends and myths and whatever. And one couldn't be certain of what was the Word of God any longer. So, you know, naturally, that's going to cause some anxiety amongst the laity, particularly. It's a real good question, though. You know, here we are now, the Seminex generation's mostly retired uh, or on their way out. Um, but I guess, you know, the lasting impact, I guess it really is profound. I hadn't really thought a whole lot about it for a while, but, uh, I, I think you're right that, uh, perhaps it's actually introduced a little more rigidity into the LCMS in certain ways. Yes. Also. I think rigidity and, and suspicion. And I think we still have the tendencies from those battle days of witch hunting, of, of continually looking for the error and, and going mm. after. There, there was a lot of personal attack. And unfortunately, right. this is in our time, uh, that's become fashionable. 
in in politics, in in religion, and everything to just just mount these 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 broad personal attacks. And we've seen we've seen some of the people that we know get caught up in in that kind of thing. And it's it's that yep. it's that mentality that. Uh, it's almost like the McCarthy era of yellow journalism, where you wanted to just smear somebody's reputation, and and just destroy them personally. And and it's very unfortunate. I think we learned some bad habits uh, back in those days, and they still carry forward today with the new generation. You know, we we want to be faithful about what it is that we believe, teach, and confess, and, but we have to be careful about becoming a purity cult, and and it ends up being so factional in the long run where unless you believe just like I do or confess exactly like I do, well, you're not pure, and I don't think you're actually a Christian anymore. You know, one of the take-home lessons that I, I, I as I, I vaguely recall this, and I, I recall my pastor preaching on these topics, although he kept his congregation pretty insulated from it when I was growing up, but I think one of my take-home lessons is that you have to have— your, your faith has to be centered and anchored in Jesus Christ, his person mm. and his work. And when it's anchored in Christ, then you have a, a level of freedom and flexibility and nimbleness to explore things and to explore ideas and not to be afraid of everything. Uh, what's happened today is everything becomes a litmus test of Christian orthodoxy, and I mean everything. Yeah. So and and it, it we've replaced something being the the Lutheran standard was always is it Christocentric is it Christ centered, uh, now that's been replaced by is it biblical and biblical in the sense of is it in the Bible somewhere, well there's mm-hmm. lots of things in the Bible somewhere, but for example you know these days patriarchy is is assumed to be a Christian virtue now. It was just a Near Eastern norm, but now it's a Christian virtue because it's in the Bible. See, and, and Interesting. This, this was never the Lutheran way of reading the Bible. We, we read the Bible as Jesus himself instructed us to read the Bible. It's about him. It's about his death and resurrection for repentance and forgiveness. Uh, and so that's what parts the ways between us and an evangelical or a fundamentalist is that it's not sufficient that it's biblical but it's, it's biblical and Christocentric. It's centered in Christ at the same time. We've lost the center, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, I, I got this in spades earlier this week. I, I was at a uh, pastor's conference that was not a Lutheran pastor's conference. Someone invited me and paid my way, and so I said, oh, what the heck, I'll go. And, and it really is about the best that evangelicalism has to offer as far as the, the guys who are speaking and everything. And they would get right up to the delivery point of the gospel and then veer off. And, uh, you know, it was for pastors, there are like 1,300 pastors here, and really the takeaway is we're a bunch of jars of clay. You need to learn how to be a better servant. You need to try harder. You need to, you know, and and it's so frustrating because like you're pointing out, the only way I can do that is through the cross and, and through me confessing that I am utterly helpless and I need the gospel. And, and that should be pretty much a litmus test of what our Christianity is. But we are always given to this curving back in on ourselves repeatedly. And we see it with confessionalism. We see it with liberalism. We see it in all sorts of things. But when we 
you know, we get our eyes off Christ and we end up in these bad places over and over again. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's the genius of, of Lutheran theology as Christian theology. I mean, it, it's not uh, two different things, but it's it's the recognition that Christ is the center. Not one of several things confessed, but Christ is the center. The justification of the sinner is the center of, of things. And then from that center, you can work anywhere you want. But all your doctrinal spokes, it's like, a, it's like a, a bicycle wheel. The hub is Christ and the justification of the sinner in Christ. And then the spokes kind of radiate out from that. Now, you can, you can run a wheel with a few busted spokes. It may be wobbly, and it may not be able to support a lot of weight, but, but it'll run. But if you have no hub, if you have no center, then all you have is this loose collection of spokes. And I'm afraid that's where we're, that's where we're heading. Or that's where we've gotten is is it's just a loose collection of doctrines, uh, just a list of I, doctrines. I, yeah, we we see this. This is why we get so frustrated with our Calvinist neighbors, is because they have their theologies so locked down, so tight that there's no room for mystery, and it also gets in the way of grace. Well, there, I think the governing thing is is not so much that it's biblical, but that it's logical. That there's there's a need that there must be logical coherence, or it cannot be of God. And I, I think in our circles, we're okay with paradox. We we revel in that, and paradox is good. I mean, the incarnation is paradoxical, so you expect a lot of paradox in Christianity. But I think the, the problem, and, and there were people who warned about this back in those days, in the 70s, that the direction that we were going was heading straight headlong into the ditch of fundamentalism and biblicism. Mm. Biblicism is not honoring the Bible. Biblicism is making the Bible the center. And, right. and the Bible is not the center. It's the source. It's the authority. It's the norm. It's the prophetic and apostolic word. It's the word of God. But it's not the center. We don't believe in the Bible. We believe what the Bible teaches concerning Christ and salvation. Uh, but we're, we're doing something different today. We're making the Bible into textbook, and we're making the Bible the source book of all knowledge, which it isn't. It doesn't even purport to be that. And, and I think another problem, too, is we're creating a kind of docetic view of the Bible. Docetism was where people said Jesus only appeared to be human. He was God in a human suit. Okay, so it's just a clever disguise. He's really God, just appears to be human. And I think what, what, what we sound like, at least, is we're saying the Bible is the Word of God. It just only appears to be human. It's just, it only appears to be human language. You know, newsflash, it is human language, and it is human narrative, and it is human history, and it has all the foibles and limitations and whatnot of that kind of literature. We should expect that. Didn't fall from the sky on golden plates. No. No. You know, that's that's always the thing, is, is we want to make it like God dictated the Bible, and instead of inspiring the Bible. Yeah. And, and, and it's very different. And, then and now we're probably accused of being liberals, and we're we're not even believing the word of God now. Because, See, and, and it created you know, that problem. Like, this, like right? with, with there was a professor who was just looking at textual analysis because a, a real text in real history has its own history. It gets copied, and things happen, and there are families of texts, and and so it just raises the question. 
is there actually even, is it even meaningful to speak of such things as the autograph edition? You know, we have the autograph edition of nothing. Right. <laughs> and, and it's good we don't have the autograph edition of nothing, because you know what we would do with it? We'd worship it. We'd parade right. it around in a glass case, and we'd be bowing down and worshiping the autograph edition of Romans rather than reading it. And, and that's well, the real problem. Yeah. It, it's it's uh, one of the reasons that uh, Jesus didn't call a local sculptor to be one of his apostles, I guess, is had he made a, uh, a fair representation of Jesus, we'd probably be bowing before the statue instead of <laughs> worshiping the God. Well, right? you, you look in the Old Testament, Aaron's rod had to be destroyed, and, and all these all these like artifacts. Uh, even the Ark of the Covenant, gets it just gets destroyed in the Babylonian exile. You know, what God, God knows what we do with stuff like this. Right. And, We're and, idolaters. He knows it. Yeah, it's we, we can make idols out of holy things. It's, it's amazing the capacity we have for idolatry. And so we just, we, we don't need a good, it's not sufficient to have a good enough Bible. We have to have a perfect Bible, you know, and, and that's, the, that's the, the odd thing. I, I kind of use the, the incarnational analogy, like with Jesus. Imagine Jesus in a carpentry shop, right? And did he ever like like miscut a board? Because woodworkers miscut all the time. Oh yeah. You know, sometimes the the saw follows the grain, and 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 everybody says, "Oh no, he's the Lord. He never made a mistake. He made perfect tables." Well, then he wasn't human like us. Yeah, Paul Meyer talks about that, and uh, I think it's his Jesus Legend or Lord series, where uh, you know there's all these all these other writings, and one of them apparently speculates that. Uh, Joseph one day miscut a board, and uh, not a problem. Just call the assistant over, and he zapped it out to the right right length for him because <laughs> yeah, he's right. God. He that's can do right. That, you know? That's right. It's it's <laughs> that's why you always cut long. <laughs> right. Okay. You, you can, can always take more. You up. can fix that. I've been I've been learning about this laying the flooring down in the basement. Right. Always cut long, and then 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 ease back in. But you can't right. make the boards longer again. No. Uh, I remember it's like doctor. A haircut. Dr. Nagel talked about that. He says, oh, and when our Lord uh, made a table and it wobbled, he fixed it promptly. <laughs> In other words, he was capable of making a wobbly table, but he fixed it promptly and he didn't charge you for it because that would be like, that's good business. But but all this to say is, is that I, I think there are lasting effects, and I think that we're feeling some of them today in some of the controversies that we see. Where, where, whether it's about liturgy or whether it's about the nature of the Bible or the way um, science and scripture relate, uh, these are all insecurities that flow out of this this very divisive controversy. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to undervalue the controversy. It 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 fractured families. It hurt people oh, yeah. deeply. It destroyed congregations. Um, you know, and it's like any civil war. It it leaves lasting, lasting polarities, and you you don't recover easily from those things. Well, I think we we have to remember also, and I, I tell folks at my church this all the time: is the opposite of an error is usually an error in the opposite direction. <laughs> it is, and so we we have to be careful about not overcorrecting the course and going in other directions, and and we're given to do that way too often, and I think we do at times. Uh, even today, in reaction against what happened back in the 1970s, I, I think I think when the scriptures are reduced to a source book of proof texts, 
uh, we've taken really all the fun out of the scriptures. It, it would be very, if, if God just wanted 10 propositions for us to know how to be saved, he could have saved a lot of ink and a lot of parchment and a lot of work and just given us the, the you know, the 10 principles and, and it'd be fine. But he didn't. He, he created a book of images and the images are of characters and history and people and stories and these things are what shape our faith and their their power is in the telling of them and we've lost all of that we we've we've lost that that kind of, we've lost the humanity of the scriptures i think and that's really too bad yeah. and i and i hope we can recover that because i'll, I'll tell you reading the bible is a lot more fun when you're not when you're not boxing with every imaginary enemy and and looking for yet another bash passage to use against quote, those people, you know? So, um, right. A good proof text to, uh, to go get them, (laughs) to go, to go get them. So anyway, lots of, lots of lasting effects. I hope that as the generations study it and look back, uh, we can distill something constructive out of all of this. And whenever, whenever parties disagree, always look to see what points they're disagreeing on. And then also look at what their common error is, the thing that they hold in common, which drives them to disagree in the first place, because it's there. Hey, you want to talk about some uh, zany, nutty religious stuff going on out there? The wacky world of religion. I think, yes. the, you know, I'm still struggling to find a... Um, Kind of a theme song for Wacky World of Religion. This is the best I can come up with so far. <laughs> this is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. God's elect know the time when judgment day is coming, but the unbelievers, they don't know the time. It doesn't get wackier hmm. than Harold camping. Not much. Not much at all. Uh, check this out. South Africa. We haven't heard from Henning for a while. I know. And I think I know what he's been up to uh-huh. because uh, New South African Church celebrates drinking alcohol. <laughs> the horror. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Celebrates. Celebrates. Drinking Drinking alcohol. of alcohol. Dressed in a red robe and a gold-trimmed bishop's mitre, the clergyman pours whiskey into his cupped hand and anoints the forehead of a man sitting before him. You are hereby invested as a minister. This is a double tot, he says, of the remaining whiskey in the chalice. Uh, He hands the new minister, he, he hands it to the new minister who downs it. Hallelujah, shouts the congregation members who erupt in singing, dancing, and swinging from bottles of beer. Or swigging, rather, from bottles of beer. Uh, so basically, this church. Drink and drinkers we need to loan them Jason Caspar, I think. I've not yet begun to defile myself. I see this. This is the religion <laughs> news service. Religion yes. news service. What's the date on this? April 21st, uh, 2018. So it's relatively April new. April 21st. The yep. Gabola Church. The Gabola Church. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Speaking so, of ditches, this one has yeah. driven headlong into a ditch. We my, drink my for reading... deliverance. We are drinking for the Holy Ghost to come into us. I think he. I think this is a confusion of spirits. 
I don't know. Is it? Yeah, well, they, I I'm think not sure. there are spirits and there's the Holy Spirit, <laughs> but I think they're a little confused here with the spirits. So my reading of this article is basically there are some very pietistic churches who have damned drinking altogether and uh, made it, I, I think I read in here somewhere that they were either had passed or were trying to pass legislation to not allow a bar to be within a certain distance of a church and all this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, the opposite of an error is an error in the opposite direction. Oh, a fine so. illustration right here. <laughs> so so his answer... Nothing is as happy in the world as people who drink, said <laughs> Nigel Lehasha, Lee, whatever. Uh, Lehasha, Lee there we go. <laughs> Easy for you to say. He, so his answer to, to Christian teetotalers is, is uh, sacramentalized whiskey drinking. You know, I love the final line on this <laughs> yeah. because I I appreciate this. There's no fighting, no arguing. We have nothing but love. These these are happy drunks. I, these are not <laughs> these are not your angry drunks. These are the happy drunks, and they just want to hug each other and sing songs. I think. Okay, okay. Here we go. I, I, while you're talking, I was paging the, the condemnation of other Christian organizations did not bother the thirty worshipers attending a recent Gabola service held in a bar. <laughs> in the sprawling Orange Farm Township, 40 kilometers south of Johannesburg. We have to ask uh, Henning about this. Now, yeah, well, now we had stripper here, church last time. Here this you time go. We've got uh, this, bar church. This dovetails with your intro. A pool table served as the altar. Don't get rid of the pool table, Craig. You have the, you have the basis <laughs> My, for a house church right in your basement. You know, it's a lot like the catacombs, except it's my basement. A, and tr- a, a pool table served as the altar, adorned with bottles of whiskey and beer. Six ministers at the altar solemnly blessed the chilled jumbo bottles of beer bought by most churchgoers. Uh, you few, got your 40 ounces. A few drank whiskey, brandy, or other beverages, all of them similarly blessed. The congregation sang hymns praising the positive effects of drinking. Three new Gabola members were baptized with beer, which covered their foreheads and dripped down their faces. There, there is a Lutheran precedent set there, by the way. And if you're wondering, Gabola means drinking in Tswana, one of South Africa's official languages. So our aim, he says, is to convert bars, taverns, and shebeans, shebeans. I don't know what a shebean is, but I... We, I'm we a, need a ruling on that from Henning. Into churches. So, and we convert the tavern owners into pastors. Craig, I, I, I have a feeling that I, I'm a little concerned that, that what you're doing in your basement may be in sympathy with this. So we've got, you have all the elements. You've got a screen. And these days you need a screen for a church. So you've got a screen, true. a projector, a pool table, and a tiki bar. So I'm getting a little nervous that you may have gone to the dark side. I maybe have. It's hard to say. <laughs> Um, I had a thought. Now it's gone. I don't know what it was. I I need a drink. With me and he smokes with me 
and he tells me Blue, you're my boy! Okay. I as his ring, their hands in their praising bands With some bacon I'd stay here all day There he is, Jason Kaspar. Beautiful, a beautiful. One, a one-man barbershop quartet right there. That that I think that song perfectly summarizes the Gabola Church. If it's, you will, it's right there. It's so right there. We, we, as a matter of fact, maybe we should send them that uh, that audio file, and uh, <laughs> it could go in their hymn book for a price. <laughs> uh, I'm not. Maybe we'll have free. Jason send it. Yeah, I think I think he, I think he may be onto something there. Now, I, I need to be clear that the Manly Doctors of Divinity are not endorsing this at all. That, Much. Uh, dr- no, not at all. I mean, drunkenness is not. Uh, oh, oh, drunkenness in general. You know, in these days of sanctification and the emphasis on the third use of the law, I must exhort, and I repeat, exhort uh, that self-discipline in all things is called for. But uh, having said that, it is kind of funny. No, 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 you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> Very, that's, that's great. <laughs> Ah, well, Uh, thanks, Craig, for that. That's the wacky world of religion. Yes, yes. And it just keeps coming. That's the amazing thing. Well, you know, there's never a shortage of weird stuff going on. You can't turn to either Pathios or the religion news service and not find something on a a daily basis. You know, during our hiatus, the Babylon Bee has come on strong. That that thing uh, is genius. as As a great source of. Entertainment. I, I fear, though, that it's giving people ideas. <laughs> well, that's, the other thing is, have you noticed that that people can't tell the difference between satire and the real thing? They they're actually they're actually. Oh yeah, people are outraged by sharing this. it and discussing yeah. it. And he, dude, it's the Babylon Bee. That's a satire site. <laughs> just, they don't they don't know. So um, I think. Maybe as kind of the parting part of uh, episode 331, yeah. uh, we should at least uh, take up something in the way of current issues. This would, this would be to introduce our new segment called er- Current Issues, Etc. Do we have music? We do. We do. You're mocking me, aren't you? Oh, no, 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 no. That's Chris Lemker at the Mighty Swirlitzer. So, Boy Scouts of America, now known as Scouts BSA. Scouts BSA. What, Craig, does BSA stand for? Uh, I believe it is now Boy Scouts of America, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken. I, I didn't see that coming. Is the LGBTQ uh, RSV? Boy Scouts are now Scouts BSA. But here's the headline. Here's the headline that I'm reading out of. What am I reading? World Religion News. Many of you will not think that Mormons leaving the Boy Scouts is important. Oh, you would be wrong about that. The Boy Scouts of America are losing members rapidly, and with the nearly 20% of the 2.3 million members being Mormons. I didn't know that. I did not 20% either. 20% of the Boy Scouts are Mormons. It will soon be even more diminished. Uh, but if you are part of any social organization, this could be a new trend. So the Mormons are cutting ties 
with the Boy Scouts of America, soon to be called Scouts BSA. And what do you suppose that the the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back is? Was it the gays or the girls? Yeah, it's kind of a combination of the gays and the girls, although it's more than the gays. It 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 is the it is is scouting trying to be inclusive. In, and inclusive is the, 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 the newest virtue. Uh, so it's the LGBTQ rights thing. And then finally, basically opening the ranks of the Boy Scouts to the girls. Hence, Scouts BSA. Were you ever in scouting? I was not. Were you? No. Yeah. I, I, was, I was for two months accidentally. How do you become an accidental scout? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. First of all, I was <laughs> never, never even remotely tempted to join scouting. I um, I wanted to be in Little League Baseball, and my parents said no because it involved too much parental involvement. That, that, that's how my parents rolled. No, you can't do it. Too much parental involvement. Uh, they didn't want to sell stuff and go to games and all that thing. But but uh, just I, go mow the lawn. I inadvertently joined. Um, it was kind of a scouts organization. I don't think it was. It was part of. It wasn't part of the scouting hierarchy. You sure it wasn't the Mormon Church that you joined by accident? No, I'm sure of it. We, okay, we didn't even meet in a church. But it, I joined it because it was a bicycling club, and so I, I was doing a lot of bicycling, and I was in high school, and they were going on these bike tours, and I I I liked long distance bike trips. And so I joined this bicycling club and I discovered after a couple of months that it was part, it was a a part of scouting. It was part of the boy scouts. And and then I quit, but this was a, did you get a merit badge? No, no. As I said, it wasn't part of the hierarchy in the whole merit system. It was just, it was a bicycling club. And I, I, I've forgotten what its actual title was, but it was associated with, with scouting. Um, I didn't, scouting was not real big. Our church didn't have um, a, a chapter or whatever they called them. And, and uh, it just wasn't part of the neighborhood vibe. Although I did have friends who weren't scouting. Now, what are the Lutheran Girl Scouts that I see all the time? They wear those blue uniforms and they have a merit badge. Oh, those are deaconesses. I'm sorry. I got confused. That's not, that's, that's not, not scouts. That's, that's not nice. Yeah, I'm uh, going to pay for yeah, that. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna pay, pay badly big for, for that, that one. Yeah. Scouting. Um, what do you what do you uh, what, what do you think of of the the girls in Boy Scouts? What do you have any thoughts on that? Because yeah, you I know, uh, I, there's there's just no guy things anymore. I mean, you can't <laughs> oh. have your guys clubs. You, you cigar lounges are being invaded by women. Uh, you know, you can't even have a men's room anymore. And, and there, there needs to be some sort of guy thing. You I mean, sound like Hootie. Remember, what's his name? Hootie uh, from the from Augusta National. Remember when Martha Burke was was threatening to pick oh, yeah. the Masters because the, because <laughs> Augusta didn't let women in. And and Hootie and I always think of Hootie and the Blowfish, but it wasn't right. Hootie. Hootie Johnson. I think was his name. He was the guy who who ran the cab and the green jacket, the whole deal. And then and, and he made the big stand against Martha Burke. And I think I wrote an essay back then about how exactly your point. There there's there's no more men's room anywhere. There's no place to go where you can't get yeah. away from women. And and. Uh, so I guess if so, you kind of see the Boy Scouts as kind of like a I, a big I, men's room. Now I've never <laughs> been a Boy Scout, so I don't know what goes on there. But I think of the of this, you know, the campfire scene from Blazing Saddles, where 
It's a lot of farting going on. <laughs> Just letting loose around the campfire. Yeah. I'll tell you, um, the if I were a girl, uh, I wouldn't really want to be involved in Girl Scouts because all you do is sell cookies. And I'm a little concerned about the future of thin mints. That's really, that's my dog in this oh. hunt, is what's going to happen to the thin mint? Because now, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> I might go into mourning if you keep talking about I'm stocking that. up, and, and they are good frozen, so just stick them in the freezer, and they'll be fine. But I, I'm a little <sighs> bit worried about the future of the thin mint. But... If if I were a girl, can you get those on eBay or anything? I'm gonna look. I'm sure. I'm sure you can get them anytime. But but uh, I, I'm concerned about. I, I wouldn't want to be a, in Girl Scouts because it's all about selling cookies and then like girl empowerment or some nonsense like that. The guys got to go camping, rock climbing, you know, hanging out, doing doing outdoor stuff. Uh, whenever I think of Scouts, I always think of the the hero kid in Moonrise Kingdom that movie where. Uh, he, he he's he's running off with with his pen pal girlfriend, and and he sets up the perfect camp. And when they finally find him, his, his scoutmaster's admiring the the organization, the tidiness of the camp. He's really that's this is a really nicely constructed camp. But it was it was cool. You learned how to put up a tent and start a fire and cook outdoors. And all right, if I were a girl, get... that sounds a lot cooler than empowerment. You can get Thin Mints on Amazon Prime, two-day shipping. It's very nice. But one box, $13.12.95. Worth every cent. That's a little Have stiff. you ever tried the Canadian version? There's a Canadian Girl Scouts. Oh, no. I, don't, I wonder if Canada is going the same way, if Canadian scouting has gone the same inclusive way. But the Canadian Thin Mint is a thing of beauty. Imagine like a Thin Mint meets a York Peppermint Patty. Ooh, that's what I'm talking about. Ooh, that is good. Yeah, so, the, there was a shortage. Do you remember this a few years ago? Yes, that yes. there there are two factories that they're made at, and and for some reason there was a shortage, and it, it was a national crisis. This is day of morning. I think flags were flown at half mast. <laughs> so this morning I'm having breakfast. I made a nice omelet, by the way, and and I read in my L.A. Times, an otherwise uh, crazy liberal newspaper, but I do get it Thursday through Sunday for the sports and the food section. Uh, but I read an editorial op-ed by Spencer Windus is his name, and he's a Mormon, so it fits into this thing, and he and he was a scout. And, and advanced in scouting, and, and he has a kind of an interesting reflection on it. And he reflects back to uh, his scouting experience on Catalina Island in 1984, where his troop had two female uh, counselors. And as he puts it, they were rising high school seniors, 17 to our 13, and they looked sharp and exotic in the uniform shirts and shorts we knew so well. Instead of its usual descent into the Lord of the Flies behavior, my troop was well-behaved when the female counselors were around. The guys even showered daily. One of the counselors was a stereotypical beauty with a long blonde ponytail. She taught archery. Some of the boys readily improved their skills with a bow that season. The other counselor was a round-faced tomboy with short brown hair. Knowledgeable and humorous, we didn't know the appropriate parlance of sexual yeah. orientation. But one scout, highly attuned to the masculine pecking order, referred to her as being, quote, just as good as one of the guys. <laughs> <laughs> Now, his take is that the, the, the men's room, 
uh, formerly known as the Boy Scouts, now known as Scout Scouts BSA, uh, had a good side and a bad side. The good the good side was the you know was the boys being apprenticed as men and uh, learning the outdoors, building confidence, moral, ethical codes, leaving your campsite clean, helping other people. Um, but he also said there's kind of a dark side to the whole thing. He says, I remember how while sitting for my citizenship merit badge, the badge advisor, a local real estate developer, solemnly informed me that the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was a communist. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, he hated the dynamic of unsupervised boys trying to sort out and live up to toxic ideas about masculinity. We played a vicious ball game called Smear the Queer. Oh, and, man, I and, played that all the time. And when I was everyone a kid. was haunted by the thought of being the queer. Oh, come on. Well, and any boy who didn't meet the capricious standards set by the troops, more powerful members could be hurt physically and mentally in ways that unequivocally qualified as child abuse. It may be a do, little Do you know what Smear the Queer is? It's like dodgeball. Well, it's you throw a football in the middle of a bunch of kids, and the guy who picks it up is it. And oh, you pile on him. Everybody dogpiles on that guy, and then and then he throws a ball up, and whoever catches it, they dogpile on that. We had a we it's had a bad racial we had a bad racial name for that game. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the moral of the story of this this particular article is the civilizing lesson I learned at Camp Cherry Valley was that young men are better when there are young women around. The lesson I've learned since is that we shouldn't allow girls in scouting because of that, but because everyone deserves the experience of scouting. At its core, scouting is a machine for getting children in touch with the young adults inside of them through exposure to nature, labor and service, and the acquisition of practical skills. Every kid needs this. Look, I agree and disagree. I agree women civilize men. But they there's do, also that's a time. Their job. That's their, there's also that's a time job. for men to just go and be uncivilized <laughs> and, and to enjoy it. So you're grieving the loss of the men's room. Yeah. Mm. I went to a restaurant in California, one that I grew up going to. And Paul and I, last time we were back there, we got a gift certificate to go to this place. And I walked in and I said, oh, I got to go visit the boys' room. I go in the back and there's a ladies' room. And then over the sign for the men's room, it says unisex. I know. I've seen that. They I, took I, away the men's room. I Make them that. both unisex. Well, I do. <laughs> That's right. You know, if they're single use, I don't care either one. Don't I'm you judge in. me. Yeah, don't judge. And, and I always assure the angry looking woman after I get out that I did put the seat up. So it's all cool. Okay. So just, 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 just relax. But, yeah, you know, I see the point and, and I do get it. And I think there is value. There is value in, in the men and the boys getting together and just, just, just being guys together. I, I, I think it's only going to backfire. I, I think it's only going to, it's not going to, it's not going to moderate masculinity. It's going to create a really warped, angry kind of masculinity. When, I think all it's going to do is kill scouting. That's well, it. It, it's dead. But I yeah. think, I, you know, I'm not sure it wasn't dying anyway. But, but yeah, this will kill scouting. But I, I don't think that this idea, the social experiment, is really going to have the desired outcome. I think it's going to have unintended consequences where uh, the boys are going to be less 
less well-behaved because they will become increasingly angry and resentful yeah. around, around the girls. True. I, I, you know, I, I think I think a conversation boys and men together is a great place to talk about respect for the girls and how to treat the girls properly. And that's harder yeah, to do when they're around. You can't you can't have that conversation when they're around. If you have good scout leaders, hopefully that's what was going on. You know, and and that is ruined when you bring the girls in because you can't really like you said, can't have that conversation. So I think what we've got here is one of our social institutions basically being destroyed by social experimentation, which seems to be the norm these days. Let's 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 experiment and see what happens, and then you'll have nothing. And of course, there's less farting around the fire. <laughs> that is one of the funniest scenes in movies I've ever seen. It's great, the, great the, scene. The bean scene from yes. Blazing Saddles. <laughs> so with that, I think we're going to exit. Um, yep. With the uh, the tones of Chris Lemker at the Swirlitzer in a composition he calls Earth, Sand, and Stars from St. Thomas. Earth, Sand. Good night, Dad. Bye, Mr. McKenzie. Fine, go. You've stayed your hour. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and please like us. You can listen to our entire archive at godwhispers.org, and you can contribute to the mailbag at godwhispers at gmail.com thanks for listening look forward to seeing and hearing from you again well when i say when you gotta go you gotta go